If you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to take them and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Before we jump back into the Gospel of Luke, in a couple of weeks, we want to utilize the start of the new year uh, to remind ourselves of some important truths on what it means for the church to do ministry in a healthy and biblical way. Um, Remind you, uh, if you were at the prayer meeting in January, one of the things we asked you to pray for our church, that God would continue to make us deeply rooted, firmly established, and long-term sustainable. So we want to think about some truths from the Scriptures, some convictional truths from the Scriptures on what it means for a church to do ministry in a healthy way. And we will do that this morning by looking at Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to consider verses 7 to 12. I'm going to read from verse 1 to give us the context, but our focus is verses 7 to 12 this morning. So please follow along with me as we read from the Scriptures. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives and He gave gifts to men. In saying He ascended, what does it mean but that He had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that He might fill all things. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask the Lord to bless the reading and the preaching of His word. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask for Your grace now that we would hear the word of God with ears of faith. We ask for grace that we would not just hear it, but that we would believe it, God. That we would obey what the Scriptures call us to do. That we would conform our lives to the Scriptures and not expect the Scriptures to conform to us. Father, I pray for softness of heart today that we might be convicted where we ought to be convicted, that we would be encouraged where we ought to be encouraged, Father, and that we would be compelled uh, to serve for the glory of Christ where we ought to be compelled. Father, please keep me from error. Please grant Your people discernment to hold fast to the truth, God. Please help us to be built up in the one faith revealed in the one Lord, even Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. The New Testament, as you know, employs a number of conviction is just kind of wandering aimlessly. A church with no conviction is just going with the flow. That's why we have convictions. So we have something to aim at. So we have something to strive for. Something to run after. Something to check ourselves against in order that we might grow. And that's what I pray these messages do in the life of our church. Like the note that I sent out to you earlier this week You can think of these messages like an annual physical. It's like a checkup. It's a reminder of what constitutes healthy church ministry. Some of it will just be a reminder. Some of it might be new. But it's like an annual checkup for us as a church. So here's what I want to do 
this morning. I want to look at this foundational text in Ephesians 4, and I want to remind us of our core convictions about the church's ministry. Next week, Lord willing, I want to define for us what it means for a church to grow. But this week, I want to remind us of what's necessary for a church to do ministry. So, to that end, let's remind ourselves of three core convictions for the church's life from Ephesians 4. The first one comes in verses 7 to 10. Every Christian is equipped with Christ's bodybuilding grace. Every Christian is equipped with Christ's bodybuilding grace. Ephesians chapter 4 is the beginning of a new section in Paul's letter where his focus shifts to living out the gospel of Christ. You can see it there in verse 1 as Paul calls believers to walk in a a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. And central to that calling is the church's unity in the gospel. I hope you heard it as we read. But seven times in these opening verses, Paul references Unity, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Do you hear it, friends? It's the glorious reality of the Gospel. There's one Lord who has saved each of us and joined us to His one body, the church. So running through the sermon today is this essential thread of unity. It's a question that some of you might be asking maybe now or maybe before, just to put it really bluntly, why should I care about building you up? Why not just focus on me and my spiritual health? Why should I care about you? Because you and I are joined to one body. You see it? It's this essential thread of unity. You and I belong to one church, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. That's why we should care. And listen, if we don't get this essential thread of unity, friends, the rest of what I'm going to say today is just going to sound like mushy mumbo-jumbo. You've got to get this, this point. Your spiritual life is tied up with mine, and mine is tied up with yours. And therefore, the, the ministry of each is necessary for the growth of all of us. There's only one body. But as Paul comes to verse 7, he makes a surprising shift. Verses 1 to 6 are all about unity, but then in verse 7, Paul shifts to focus on individual members of the body. You see it there in the text? Look at verse 7. Paul's point is profound. Listen to it again. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, the grace in view here is not the saving grace of gospel faith. Paul already explained that grace back in chapters 1 and 2. The grace in view here is what we might call the grace of gifting. In fact, Paul uses the language of giving to make this point. Look there in your text. Verse 7, verse 8, and verse 11. Three times Paul says the Lord gave to His people. 7, 8, 11. What's the emphasis? Well, to drive home that no one is left out. Every believer has received Grace in gifting from the Lord Jesus. No one's left out. And these gifts, friends, are the fruits of Christ's saving work. This is Paul's point in verses 8 to 10. Now, there's a lot that we could unpack in verses 8 to 10, but the the basic point is clear. You can see in verse 8 that Paul quotes from Psalm 68. 
which celebrates God's victory over His enemies. And as God ascends to His throne in the psalm, He shares the spoils of His victory with His people. Well, Paul is making a connection between the psalm and the Lord Jesus. Christ is the triumphant God who has conquered His enemies and delivered His people. He came down to earth, verse 9. He defeated sin and death. He ascended again to the Father in verse 10. And from His heavenly throne of victory, what does the Lord Jesus do? He gives gifts to His people. He bestows grace upon them. He shares His victory with them. He gives gifts to His church. And here's the key. Those gifts are the expression of Christ's grace. Those gifts are the expression of Christ's grace. That's astounding, brothers and sisters. Whenever you and I minister to one another, we are tangible, physical, living embodiments of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to think about that for a minute. It's really a staggering truth. To minister within the body is to be an expression of grace from the Lord Jesus to His people. Think about how this changes your perspective on doing any number of things that might seem mundane. Think about how it changes your perspective on taking a meal to someone. Or to sending them a prayer via text. A church member sent me a prayer today over text message that they were praying for me to preach. That's an expression of grace. Think about how it changes that conversation where you have to lovingly challenge a brother or sister to live in step with the Bible. Think about how it changes the way you receive that conversation. It makes those instances more than what they appear on surface, on the surface, more than meals, more than texts, more than conversations. Those actions are expressions of the Lord's grace from one member to another. And what Paul is saying here in this verse, verse 7, is that every member in the body has received the gifting to minister in this way. Grace was given to whom? Each one of us, Paul says. So at the risk of stating the obvious, brothers and sisters, let me remind you that your membership in the body of Christ is not accidental. Actually, let me put it more personally than that. You are not accidental. You are not unnecessary to the life and ministry of the church. There should be no peripheral members in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there should be no members who merely sit and see. Friends, that kind of halfway membership misses the depth of grace that Christ has given to His church. It misses the grace. In fact, I want to camp out on this for just a second. At this point, we, we could go off into a discussion of all the different spiritual gifts, and there may be some value in that. But the reality is, the specific gift that you have is less important than your conviction as to what that gift is for. Right? The specific gift you have is less important than your conviction as to what that gift is for. So I want to camp out for just a second on this idea that Halfway membership, what I'm calling halfway membership, misses the depth of Christ's grace. Whenever we remain on the fringes of a church, we are living with one of two faulty ideas. The, old, the, the, the prevailing wisdom goes that every church has three levels. Committed core, squishy middle, outer fringe. 
I take offense at the squishy metal label. Whenever we remain on the fringes of the church, we live with one of two faulty ideas. One faulty idea is that my gifts are sufficient for my own spiritual life. I don't need you to help me grow. The other faulty idea is that my gifts are unnecessary for the spiritual life of others. You don't need me to help you grow. You see, two faulty ideas. I don't need anybody else. I'm sufficient on my own. Nobody else needs me because I'm largely unnecessary. Friends, both of those ideas are faulty and ultimately dangerous and dishonoring to the Lord. Dishonoring to the Lord. If Christ has given gifts to each one of us, then no one's gifting is sufficient on its own. You have gifts that I don't have. And therefore, I can't grow without you. What's more, if Christ has given gifts to each one of us, then no one's gifts are unnecessary for the church's life. You have gifts that we would miss without you. And therefore, we cannot possibly grow as Christ intends apart from you. So do you see the centrality of the body, brothers and sisters? Christ has given grace to each one of us, verse 7 says. You can't grow on your own, and the church can't grow without you. So practically, I I pray you see the absolute necessity of gathering with the people of God week in and week out. Before we can even start talking about individual spiritual gifts, you have to start first with faithfulness to the church. You may have innumerable spiritual gifts, but if you're not with the people of God, then you can't use them. So I'll just say it as straightforwardly as I can. If gathering on Sunday with the people of God is not an integral part of your week, then friend, you need to rethink your priorities. Especially in light of Ephesians 4. And listen, it's not about mere attendance. It's not about pumping up numbers. It's about faithfully stewarding the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember the parable of the talents? The the servant whom Jesus is mad at is the one who does nothing. Right? Being with the people of God. It's not about attending, not about numbers. It's about stewarding the talent, stewarding the gift, stewarding the grace that Christ has given. Both the grace He's given you to minister to others and the grace that He intends for you to receive from others. So that's the first conviction that we have about ministry as a church. Every Christian is equipped with Christ's bodybuilding grace. That's number one. The second conviction narrows the focus a little bit, and we see this in verse 11. Some Christians are uniquely entrusted with Christ's bodybuilding word. Some Christians are uniquely entrusted with Christ's bodybuilding word. Having established that Christ gives gifts to His church, Paul now identifies one particular kind of gift that the Lord gives. And interestingly, Paul says these gifts are not things, they're not skills, they're people. Notice again verse 11. And He, that is the Lord Jesus, gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints. 
Now, this is another point in the text where we could spend a good bit of time uncovering some interpretive insights. There's a lot we could say here about apostles and prophets and all that. But for our purposes this morning, we really just need to answer one question. What ties these groups of people together? Why pick these groups, in other words? What ties these offices? Paul's clearly seeing some sort of continuity between the people in verse 11. So what is it that ties the offices together? Well, friends, it's the ministry of God's Word. It's the ministry of God's Word. Think about it. The apostles and prophets were specially used by God in the revelation, recording, and confirmation of Scripture, confirmation of God's Word. And evangelists like Philip in the book of Acts are uniquely called to spread the Word in gospel witness. So, all the people in verse 11 are tied together by the Word of God, by the ministry of the Word in the life of the church. It's the final office, though, that that should get our attention because it's the one that is most commonly found in the Lord Jesus' church, and that's shepherds and teachers. I don't think that apostles and prophets continue to this day. Okay? We can talk about the gift, the office of evangelist, but shepherds and teachers is the one that we want to focus on this morning. Paul overlaps these two terms to describe one office in the church, the office of pastor. Shepherd, shepherds and teachers, you could translate it shepherd-teacher as if they're one thing. It's probably two things that are overlapping in one way to describe the office of pastor. And I think this would be a good time to pause and offer a clarifying reminder on what exactly a pastor does. As the culture becomes increasingly post-Christian, this is a question that I actually get a lot. It goes something, something like this. So you're a pastor, right? Yep. What do you actually do every day? What do you do every week? It's a good question. None of you have asked me that, right? But It's a good question. What exactly do pastors do? And there's a lot of different answers especially if you consider what sometimes passes as pastoral ministry. So, what is a pastor? Well, here's my far too brief definition taken from Ephesians chapter 4. Here's my far too brief definition. Ready? Pastors are shepherds who serve Christ by ministering His Word to the church. Pastors are shepherds who serve Christ by ministering His Word to the to the church. Each part of that, defini- of that definition is essential and should not be overlooked. A pastor is a shepherd. He is not an executive or a manager or a life coach. He's not even a visionary or a pioneer or an entrepreneurial decision maker. A pastor is a shepherd. Think in terms of that pastoral shepherding imagery. As believers, the Bible tells us that we are the flock of God. Christians are the flock of God. We're the sheep of His pasture. And we're journeying together to the green pastures and the still waters of the New Jerusalem, the heavenly city. But Scripture also tells us that that journey is dangerous. Our enemy, the devil, prowls around like what? Like a roaring lion. What do lions do to sheep? They eat them. So the journey is dangerous. But as an expression of grace... Christ gives His people a particular gift for the journey. And that gift is shepherds, pastors. And this means that the pastor's one requirement is that he be found faithful. That he care for Jesus' sheep. When the flock gets to the green pastures of the heavenly city, the Lord Jesus will ask each shepherd, how did you tend my flock? 
Did you guard them, feed them, protect them, and lead them? Or did you feed and take care of yourself? You see, that's the pastor's identity. He's not an executive. He's not a manager. He's a shepherd. And that means his one requirement is to be faithful to Christ. At the same time, each shepherd is only a servant of Christ. That's the second piece of the definition here. Pastors are shepherds who serve Christ. The Apostle Peter, in his first epistle, uses a very unique word to describe the Lord Jesus. He calls the Lord Jesus the chief shepherd, or the boss shepherd, the head shepherd. And that's a vital point. No pastor owns the sheep. Jesus is the chief shepherd, which means every pastor is only a servant of Christ. The pastor's calling is to follow in Christ's footsteps, to follow in the chief shepherd's footsteps. So just as Jesus laid aside his garments to wash the disciples' feet, so also every pastor lays aside any pretense in order to serve the people of the Lord. And the pastor performs this service by ministering God's word to the church. That's the last piece of the definition. Pastors are shepherds who serve Christ by ministering His Word. All that a pastor has to give the church is the Word of God. This is why preaching and teaching and prayer are the bedrock activities of the pastor. Because all he has to give the church is the Word of God. I just want to... Flesh this out so you understand the, the, the real depth of this. The pastor's authority comes only from the Bible so that the church follows the pastor only insofar as he follows the Scriptures. So you're responsible to follow me and Greg and Trey and Rodrigo, but only insofar as we follow the Bible. If we don't follow the Bible, you're responsible to remove us. The pastor's authority comes only from the Bible. Secondly, the pastor's wisdom comes only from the Bible, so he's not called to be an expert on all matters of life, but only on the matters that relate to the spiritual health and well-being of the church. So I can't tell you about financial investment strategy, and that's a good thing. I can tell you about baseball, but that's not relevant. Though any wisdom I can give you only, only relates to the spiritual health and well-being that comes from the, for God's people from the Scriptures. See what I'm saying here? The pastor, he ministers the Word of God. That's all he has to give. And listen, this is how Jesus' voice, Jesus' authority gets lived out in His church. Think about this. The Lord Jesus, when He finished His work, He went back up to heaven. And He says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to Me. Then He leaves. Okay, so if all authority on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus, how, do we, how does He rule over us? He's not here physically. How does He rule over us? Through His Word, ministered by His shepherds. That's how. He, his voice, His authority, His rule is manifested as the Bible is opened and ministered and taught and explained and applied through His faithful shepherds. Friends, I'm reminding you of this because it helps round out the exhortation from a few, a few minutes ago. I urged all of us to make gathering with the church a priority, and, and perhaps surprisingly, thinking about the role of pastors helps us explain why that is so important. So I, just, I want you to just consider the flow of Paul's argument here in this, 
in this text. Verse 7, Jesus gives gifts to His church. Verse 11, one such gift is shepherd teachers who minister the Word of God. And therefore, here's the conclusion, therefore, the Word-driven ministry of a church overseen by faithful shepherds is Christ's gift of grace to you. The Word-driven ministry of a church overseen by faithful shepherds is the Lord Jesus' grace to His church so that we would grow. Listen, we need to hear the Word of God in order to live. But hearing that Word on our own is not sufficient. I mean, Friends, we've only had the Bible in English for roughly 500 years. So for the other 1,500 years of the church's life, how did you hear the Bible? You had to go to church so you could hear it. And look, the same is true today. By all means, read your Bibles Monday through Saturday. But that's not enough. Be with the people of God to hear the Word of God overseen by faithful shepherds. That's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to hear the Word of God proclaimed in the life of the church. This is why the preaching of the Word is the central feature of the church's worship. You know, before the Protestant Reformation, the pulpit was on the side of the room and the altar for the Lord's Supper was at the center. It's not an altar, but that's what they called it. And one of the things that the reformers did was they took the pulpit and they brought it to the middle and they took the table and put it under the pulpit. Why? Because the word preached is the central act. This is why the preaching of God's word is central in the church's worship. Listen, on the surface, sermons are weird. Sermons are odd. One guy standing up in a room talking about material from an ancient text to the watching world, it's odd. Why do we do this? Why do we do this week after week? Not because of tradition and not because pastors are super spiritual beings. No, preaching is central because we believe on the basis of this text that preaching is a gift of grace from Christ to His church. Friends, all I'm trying to do here is either reshape your perspective on the life of the church or remind you of what you already hold dear these few minutes that we spend together on Sunday are nothing less than the outworking of the Lord Jesus' grace. And when we withdraw from the church, we are essentially saying, I don't need your grace, Jesus. I can live on my own. He is the good shepherd, friends. He hasn't left us alone. But one of the ways that He demonstrates His goodness is by giving us His Word in the context of the church overseen by faithful shepherds so that each of us might grow. That's our second conviction. Some Christians are uniquely entrusted with Christ's bodybuilding word. Let's look at the third and final conviction that we have for ministry. This last one in verse 12 puts, puts it all together. This is the third conviction. All members are essential in Christ's bodybuilding work. All members are essential and Christ's bodybuilding work. In the flow of the passage, the question at this point is, what is the purpose of the pastor's ministry of the Word? Well, notice the next phrase in verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Friends, that is what you might call a paradigm-shifting statement. Sometimes the simple observations are the most important ones. Notice that the shepherds are not called to do the work of ministry. You see that? 
Rather, the shepherds are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Who are the saints? Well, they're the members of Christ's body. They're the church. They're you and me. The work of ministry is what the body together is called to do. You see, this is the reason why Christ has bestowed grace on each one of us. Verse 7. It's because the body as a whole has, is called to do the work of ministry. So let me state this very plainly, friends. This idea in verses 11 and 12 turns much of modern church thinking upside down. On its head. The ministry is not reserved for a clerical class of people within the church. Again, I, I know I'm giving you a lot of history illustrations, but do you know why Baptists don't wear robes when they preach? Baptist pastors, you know why we don't wear robes? Because we're not different than you. There's not a clerical class of people who does special things that you don't do. Right? The ministry is not reserved for a clerical class. The ministry belongs to the saints as a whole. To be sure, some are called in a unique way as we just saw. But notice that even these uniquely called ministers are simply servants who equip the saints. My job description is perhaps more simple than yours. My job is to equip you. So notice in verse 12 how the entire church then is working together to build itself up. Notice the last phrase in verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. What's that? For building up the body of Christ. So very simply, what is the work of ministry? It's building up the body. Getting the body mature. Getting it strong. And that building up requires each member to be engaged. Now at this point we could again go off on a discussion of specific spiritual gifts, and there may be some value in that, or maybe not. But I think it would be better simply to remind you of just two broad categories for how every member is expected to be building up the body of Christ. Just two broad ways that you can do verse 12. Neither of these ways are gift-specific. I want you to hear me on this. Neither of these broad ways are specific to any gift. Every Christian can do these things. So as we think about building up the body, verse 12, I want you just to think in two words. Two words. Serve and care. Serve and care. Flesh those out a little bit. To build up the body, each member is called to serve. This means fulfilling the practical needs of the church. From serving in children's ministry, to setting up chairs, to working on the budget, to playing music, to helping with the website, to following up with visitors, to cleaning up the physical space, to making coffee, to running sound, to taking up the offering. Just practical needs that have to happen in order for the church to function. Somebody's got to do that. Well, to build up the body means we serve and do those things. We serve and fulfill those roles. So how do we build up the body? We serve. The second word is key. To build up the body, each member is called to care. More specifically, each member is called to care for the spiritual health of other members. To care. This too gets lived out in almost innumerable ways. I hesitate to even give a list, but here you go. This is lived out in almost innumerable ways. Pray for each other, which by the way is in the church covenant that we promise to do. Faithfully attend the church's gatherings. Reach out to people who are disconnected. You look around on Sunday. You see the folks who haven't been here in a few weeks. Call them. Text them. Reach out to people who are disconnected. Reach out to folks who are new. 
sacrificially give to meet the church's financial needs. Again, it's in the covenant that we promise to do. Invite a fellow member to read through the Scriptures with you. Text another mom or dad with encouragement from the Bible. Confess your sin to someone. Reach out to those who seem to be drifting away. Hebrews chapter 2 says that we should pay attention to the Bible lest we drift away. It is very, very rare that a Christian wakes up on a Tuesday and says, you know what, I'm going to throw the faith away today. I'm just going to throw it all away. Instead, they wake up on a Tuesday and they're like, eh, I'm not going to pray. Then they wake up on a Sunday like, no, nah, I'm not going to go to church. Then another Sunday, then another Sunday, then another Sunday. And they drift away. Reach out to those who are drifting away. Start a Bible study with other people who live in your area. You say, I don't know how to do a Bible study. Yes, you do. Read and pray. Remember important events in each other's lives and reach out with encouragement and prayer on those dates and on and on and on we could go. Friends, what I'm trying to do here is to get you to see that discipleship is simply taking the initiative to care for someone with the Scriptures so that we all follow Jesus more faithfully. That's it. That's discipleship. Take the initiative to care for someone with the Scriptures so that we all follow Jesus more faithfully. And what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 4 is that each one of us has been given grace to do this work. All members are essential in Christ's bodybuilding work. So let's put all the pieces together here at the end. I know that I'm going to go a few minutes long, but I didn't preach for three weeks, so I've got like an extra ten minutes for sure. Let's put all the pieces together here at the end. These are our convictions for ministry as a church. It begins with every Christian equipped with grace. That grace is then uniquely worked out through the ministry of the Word. And then it all comes together with the body building itself up. The shepherds equipping the saints and the saints carrying out the work of ministry. That's, that's our conviction. Now I hope, man I hope, I pray that your heart is stirred by this biblical vision of church ministry. I want you to love it. At the same time, we also should be honest and acknowledge that this approach to ministry is not easy. It's not easy. It's hard. It's messy. It's inefficient. It's hard to track. You can't really tell, like, how much is it growing? What percentage are we up this year over last year? I have no idea. It's hard. It's hard. But it can happen. It can happen. Though, it does require a number of shifts in how we think about the church. So what I want to do here at the end, as we're getting ready to close, I want to summarize all of that that I just said, all of those convictions, I want to summarize them in three mindsets that we have to adopt in order for this to take root. Three mindsets that everybody in this room has got to embrace. Alright? Here you go. Mindset number one. A church must value corporate over individual. A church must value corporate over individual. Instead of viewing the church as a place where my needs are met, I view the church as a place where I serve to meet other people's needs. What's more, I understand that my spiritual health as a Christian is intricately connected to the ministry of the body to which I belong. So we value corporate 
over individual. One pastor I know tells a story about being a part of a church, and he noticed that every Sunday, right before the sermon, a man would come in and sit in the back row, and he would leave right at the pastor's closing of the sermon. He didn't come to Sunday school. He didn't come for musical worship. He didn't come to Wednesday nights. He just came for the sermon. And so this brother went to this man and said, hey, I I noticed that you just come at the end of the service and you're not here for anything else. Have you ever thought about being present for more part of the church? And the guy said, no, I just need need the sermon. And this man said, this brother said, why? And he said, well, if I came for all that other stuff, all these other people would just slow me down. And the brother said to him, have you ever thought that maybe God wants to use you to speed them up? You've got to value corporate over individual in order for this to work. The whole over the soul, one person. That's the first shift, corporate over individual. The second mindset that you have to embrace is we must think culture over program. We must think culture over program. Instead of aiming for programs that disciple members, we must strive for a culture where members disciple members. This is huge, friends. Programs may serve us in that pursuit. We would love to have a Sunday school hour. Love it. We would love to do more with children over the age of five. Absolutely love it. And if you want to look for a place to serve, perhaps that's where the Lord's calling you. We need people to make those things happen. We would love to add those programs, but they're only tools, not ends. You see it? Members disciple members. Programs don't disciple anyone. In fact, one pastor who was at the forefront of the leading movement of church growth strategy for 30 years, the guy, who, the guy who invented the church growth strategy, stood up at his church's conference a few years ago, and he said, in 35 years, I'm convinced we haven't made a single disciple. What? Why? Because they were just busy maintaining the program, Right? Programs can be good. Don't misunderstand me. They'd be good. They serve us. But we need culture over programs. Programs don't make disciples. Members make disciples. Disciples make disciples. So if what we want from Ephesians 4 is going to be realized in our church, we have to think culture over program. That's mindset number two. Here's mindset number three. We must pursue covenant over convenience. We must pursue covenant over convenience perhaps the single greatest scourge of church life in America is an attitude of convenience. Convenience. It goes like this. I invest in the church when it's convenient for me, but when it becomes inconvenient, I simply look for another place that fits my life. This is why a number of churches in our city are growing, and yet very few are growing by conversion because we prioritize convenience most of all in American church life. And when it becomes inconvenient, I just go somewhere else. So if we want to see Ephesians 4 in our church, we have to prioritize covenant over convenience. Think in terms of covenant. It's a promise that we make to one another to live out the Christian life together. This is why we have a membership covenant, friends. Because we don't want to be a church defined by convenience. We want to be a church shaped by covenant Commitment. Corporate over individual, culture over program, covenant over convenience. Still, even as we think about these mindsets, there's a question. What does this look like in practice? How do I know it when I see it? How do we do this? That's a good question. 
And to answer that question, I want to read you a letter from one of our families here at Midtown, from Matt and Michelle Jorgensen. I wish they were going to be here, but they've got illness in the home. They sent me this letter and asked me to read it to you. And in the Lord's providence, it just perfectly illustrates what we're talking about uh, this morning from Ephesians chapter 4. So, uh, corporate over individual, culture over program, covenant over convenience. What does that look like? Listen. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, on June the 24th, Claudia was admitted to Arkansas Children's Hospital where she was diagnosed with a rare and particularly aggressive form of cancer. After six months of treatment and isolation, we are now cancer-free. By God's grace, we have come to this point. As we reflect on this time, we know that we would not be here today if it were not for you, the members of Midtown Baptist Church. From the moment Claudia entered the hospital to her final day there, you never wavered from the promises that unite us as a church, which we would like to recount to you. We promise to care for one another. When we were hungry, you fed us. When we could not cry, you cried for us. When parenting was a burden, you subbed in for us. When we were lonely, you visited us and played endless rounds of exploding kittens. We promised to pray for one another. Every week, Claudia's name was in the prayer list. Every day, you prayed for us. Every time we asked you to pray, you did. You encouraged us by reminding us that you were praying and that your children even reminded you to pray. We promised to bear each other's burdens. We focused on getting well because you provided the financial means to do so. We were never alone because you made yourselves available. And when Claudia's condition was most dire and we feared our faith would fail, you prayed God's promises to us and with us. Since there are no words that can truly express the great affection we feel for you, we simply end by thanking God in Christ for you, in love, the Jorgensons. The church is a body, brothers and sisters. It's the body of Christ. And when every member is engaged and equipped to serve, incredible ministry happens. Incredible ministry happens to the glory of Christ. And by God's grace, we've been able to lay that foundation here over the last eight plus years. And what I'm asking you today is that by that same grace, let's press it deeper. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy to us and your grace. Please help us, Father, to respond to your word in obedience and faith and in love both for you and for those whom you have united us to in the Lord Jesus. We love you, Father. We pray for your help even now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you all stand with me as we close?